we're starting a new series today. And this is not a weekly series, this is a monthly series. On the first Sunday of each month, what we will do is cover a parable. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. Number one, it, it's, it's always uh, good to read what Jesus taught. Uh, but number two, I can only do this for so long before I run out of parables to preach on. So it'll keep me moving through Genesis, right? So uh, I'm hoping to be done in about a year. Uh, with Genesis, but this will keep me moving right along, teaching parables. Let's start with a word of prayer. Our Father, as we come to your word today, especially because we are looking at a parable, give us, we pray, eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of what Jesus is teaching, and the beauty of Christ for his glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Throughout the ages, people have loved treasure hunting. Anybody in here love treasure hunting? I know I love treasure hunting. In the ancient world, people treasure hunted. Uh, In our day, it's so admired, I guess, as a hobby that we even have reality TV shows about treasure hunters, people who go to uh, storage units and then end up flipping everything for, you know, a million gajillion times what they bought it for. Uh, I enjoy treasure hunting. It's something that I do to help make ends meet. It's also why websites, if you think about it, it's why websites like eBay are so popular. That's how eBay got started, because you could get on there and you could pay like pennies on the dollar for good stuff. Our study today is about treasure hunting and finding. Our message is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46, and it's titled, The Parables of Great Treasure. And in our passage today, we will see that Jesus is a treasure that is of greater value than anything else that we can desire, anything else that we can pursue in life. The kingdom of God is a treasure of greater worth than any other treasure in the universe or all treasure combined. And believing in Jesus is the means by which we enter into the kingdom of God. And thus there is no greater treasure to be desired, there is no greater treasure to be cherished or pursued than Christ Jesus himself. So we begin with the understanding. This video summed it up way more succinctly than I could, way more quickly than I could. So we start with this understanding that uh, while this parable helps us to understand what Jesus is saying, the primary purpose of Jesus using parables to teach was to conceal, not reveal, truths about the kingdom. And so for that reason, we must be very careful to consider what our Lord Jesus was saying In the passages leading up to our passage today, Jesus told several other parables in which he taught about the kingdom of God. He starts telling parables in Matthew chapter 13, and he first tells the parable of the seed sower in verses 18 to 23. He follows that with a series of kingdom parables. The seed sower isn't a kingdom parable. He then starts with kingdom parables, starting with the parable of the wheat and tares 
in verses 24 to 30, then the parable of the mustard seed in verses 31 and 32, followed by the parable of the leaven in verse 33, just one after another, after another, after another, until we read in verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And so after that, the people disperse. The people who had been listening, the crowds who were gathered around Christ, went home. And Jesus went away to be with his disciples, where they asked, and he explained, about the parable of the wheat and tares. And after explaining that parable to them, Jesus continued teaching, this time only to his disciples, only to the twelve that he had chosen to be his disciples, this time teaching them through parables privately. And that's when we come to verse 44, which is where we start our lesson today, where Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, there are seven parables about the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13, and this is number four. This is the fourth one. Throughout the New Testament, the term kingdom of heaven is a term that was used only by Matthew. Nobody else in the New Testament even used this term, only Matthew. And he used it a total of 32 times in his gospel account. And the term kingdom of heaven is found eight times in the 13th chapter, which is more than we find that term found in any other chapter in the book. So this chapter is focusing on the kingdom of God more than any other. Now, maybe you're wondering what the kingdom of heaven is exactly. Is it the same as heaven? You know, God's eternal dwelling place? Is it referring to the place where God's people are gathered or, or will be gathered? What exactly is the kingdom of heaven? Well, we have to remember that Matthew was a Jewish man who was writing to other first century Jews who had recently converted to Christianity or maybe who were just learning about Christianity. They'd come from a Jewish background and they're learning about Jesus. And Jews had a tradition of not speaking the name of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying the name of God. God never says that you can't say his name as long as we use it properly in the context that we're allowed, that we're permitted by God to use it, to use it respectfully, even fearfully. But the Jews had a custom of not speaking God's name as a way of just kind of providing a buffer zone so that they did not break the commandment to, take, to not take God's name in vain. So instead of using the name of God, Jews would commonly substitute the word heaven for his name. That was considered to be an acceptable substitute or maybe even a euphemism, you might say. We hear people do the same thing in our culture too, by the way. How many of you ever uh, have heard somebody say, oh, heaven help us? You know, that's a, a pretty common phrase, or uh, maybe even heavens to Betsy, although I'm not even sure what that means. But what then is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? That's, that's the real question, since this term kingdom of heaven is synonymous with kingdom of God. That's the real question. What is the kingdom of God? Generally speaking, 
the term kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven in in Matthew's writings, refers to God's sovereign reign. It refers to God's sovereign authority, to his jurisdiction. It means to be under his domain, living our lives in obedience to God under his sovereign jurisdiction. So it's not so much a place, a physical place, as it is a mindset. It's a worldview. It's just like any other kingdom in that sense, we might say. Let's say that you go and you visit the UK, which is what? United Kingdom, right? Kingdom. And once you enter their borders, you are required to abide by their rules that they have within their borders. And those might differ from the borders, from the, from the rules uh, within the kingdom or the nation that you come from, right? Okay, so it makes perfect sense. Each kingdom has its own rules, And the same works in God's kingdom. If you are a part of it, it will mean yielding to his rules, yielding to his jurisdiction and his sovereign authority. And this is what Jesus is teaching about in this parable, the kingdom of heaven. In this parable, Jesus says that God's kingdom is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And it's kind of ironic that he says that, isn't it? Because he's saying that the kingdom of God is hidden since parables were a means of hiding the truth, concealing the truth from those who had already rejected it. And so this treasure, it's hidden out in the field and a man finds it. This hypothetical parabolic man finds it. And we have no idea what he's doing out in the middle of this field. Is he walking through it? You know, is he, what's he doing? We don't know. Maybe he's looking for food. Maybe he's just passing through. Why he's there apparently is not an important detail, so we don't want to get too caught up in it. Either way, he's not looking for treasure. He's walking through this field, and he finds this treasure accidentally. Now, you might ask, why would treasure be hidden out in the middle of a field? That's a good question. Well, it was common practice in the ancient world to bury your treasure in times of war in order to protect it and prevent it uh, from being plundered in case your side in the war uh, were to lose. So there are two possibilities here as this man stumbles upon this treasure. Either this treasure is, is ancient and the owner is just, he's, he's long gone. Or it belongs to the legal landowner. So how do you find out which it is? You go and you try to buy the land. Now the man could have dealt with this situation very dishonestly. He could have just taken the treasure. He could have picked it up, packed it up, taken it home with him. And it's probable that nobody would have ever noticed But instead, he covers it back up, just as he found it, and he goes and he asks the landowner how much this piece of land is going to cost. And the answer is that it will cost him absolutely everything that he has. What would you be willing to give up everything for? What would you be willing to give up everything for? Is there anything for which you would be willing to lose everything in life in order to gain? That's the question that this man is faced with, and these are the kinds of questions that this parable is designed, specifically designed, to cause us, to force us to ask ourselves. 
what would I be willing to give up everything for? And what's the man's response? Is it to to hesitate when he finds out that it's going to cost him absolutely everything? Is is his response to, to think long and hard about what he should do, what he's going to do? Is he sad that he would be required to give up absolutely everything that he has in order to gain this treasure? No. It says when he finds out what it's going to cost him, he's joyful. He's joyful. He says, that's the cost. I've, I've got it. All I need to do is sell everything I have. I, I, I'm coming back. I'll come back as soon as I've got everything so, uh, sold, and, and I'll, I'll come back and take it. He can't believe how fortunate he is. And he would be more than happy to trade everything that he has to gain this treasure. And so he goes And he sells all that he has in order to buy the field, thus becoming the rightful owner of the field. The point here is that everything that he owns pales in comparison to the price of this treasure. It doesn't measure up in comparison to the treasure that he will gain in exchange. And what is that treasure? For us, it's the kingdom of heaven. So I ask again, is there anything for which you would be willing to lose everything that you have in order to gain? What might you not want to lose? What might you not want to give up in order to gain citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? If you want to know how to identify your priorities, if you want to know how to identify your affections or your idols, ask yourself this question. And answer it honestly. Maybe you'd have trouble letting go of your job. Maybe you'd have trouble letting go of your parents. Maybe you'd have trouble letting go of your family members. Maybe you'd have trouble letting go of your self-esteem. Maybe you'd have trouble giving up Pokemon Go. I mean, seriously, it it could be absolutely anything in life. Maybe you'd have trouble letting go of a sinful habit that just gets the best of you from time to time. See, idols come in all different forms, shapes, and sizes. So what would you, what would you struggle to let go of in order to gain this treasure? This is the same principle that we see Jesus referring to when he was approached in Mark chapter 10 by a rich young ruler who wanted to know, Lord, a good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to him by saying, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And so the young man, he's listening, He's going down this checklist in his mind. I've done that, I've done that. And so he says back to Jesus, Teacher, I've I've kept all these things from my youth. But Jesus says to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And the story concludes with Mark telling us, disheartened by the saying, He, the rich young ruler, went away sorrowful. Why did he go away sorrowful? For he had great possessions. 
It made him sorrowful that he had great possessions. Why? Ah, because there's a cost. There's a cost to entering the kingdom. There's a cost to following Jesus. Forsaking, losing, giving up our idols. And the rich young ruler's great possessions were his idol. They were his God. And Jesus was basically telling him, listen, you can follow me, but I'm not going to compete for your heart with your gods. And the outcome is that this rich young ruler would rather have had all the things that he had, all of his great possessions, rather than trade them in and gain citizenship in God's kingdom. This parable in Matthew 13.44 forces us to really examine ourselves doesn't it? What would we do if we were in the rich young ruler's shoes? What would you do? What would, would you, what would you do if you were the man in this parable? Would we be willing to joyfully surrender everything for the sake of gaining Christ? Do you see Christ as infinitely more valuable than anything else that you have in life, anything else that you love in life? Do you, as Paul did, consider everything that you own, everything that you desire, everything that you love, everything that you aspire to, everything that you possess to be garbage, rubbish in comparison to knowing? And gaining Christ. What do you value? What do you value? And, and how much do you value what you value? What do you value most? What would you be willing to give up everything for? What would you not be willing to give up everything for? What do you love so much that in your mind, in your heart, there is no cost that would be too great if you had a chance to gain it? That's the question. What do you love so much that you would give up everything to gain it? Jesus continues with a very similar parable. Extremely similar. Verses 45 and 46. He says again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now this parable is almost exactly the same, but there is one minor difference. It's actually a pretty significant difference. Once again, this this man finds great treasure. He finds pearls, fine pearls, And fine pearls in the ancient world were much more rare than they are today. You know, these days we've got, you know, oyster farms, pearl farms, where we, you know, we know that we can pry open an an oyster and put a piece of sand in there, and, you know, in, you know, however much time, you'll have a fine pearl. But not back in in Jesus' time. People had to actually dive deep into the ocean, and they had to find an oyster. And they had to do this, by the way, without goggles, in salt water, without scuba gear either. So they had to go down, they had to find it, 
They had to cut it loose. They had to bring it up to the surface and hope that there was something good inside. Otherwise, they were just going to have oysters for dinner. He's talking about a man who's been on a search for something exceedingly rare and exceedingly incomparably valuable. And like the first man, he finds it. He finds great treasure. Like the first man, it's going to cost him. And it's going to cost him everything that he has, everything that he loves in order to possess this fine pearl. Like the first man, all that he owns, he realizes, pales in comparison to the value of the treasure that he has sought and he has found. And like what the first man found, he is more than happy to make this trade, to make this exchange. This exchange so heavily favors him, it's almost unfair. As was the case with the man who stumbled upon hidden treasure in the field accidentally, this is not an even exchange. This is heavily in this man's favor. He's coming out way, way ahead. He doesn't deserve this deal. And he knows it. And yet, this is what he's been seeking. And so when he finds it, and when it's offered to him at the cost of everything that he has... He gladly makes the trade. So we've seen all these things that are similar between the two parables. What's the difference? There's one fairly significant difference. The first man was not looking for treasure. He just stumbled upon it. The second man was seeking this treasure. And he finally found it. So what are these parables teaching us anyway? These are the illustrations. These are illustrations of the ways that people enter into the kingdom of heaven. These are ways that people gain citizenship in the kingdom of God. Some of you, when you look back on your life, you look back upon the time when you first became a Christian, and you will remember that you hadn't even been looking for God. You hadn't been looking for religion. You figured you were good enough on your own. And you accidentally stumbled upon this great treasure. You heard about Jesus. You weren't asking for it. You weren't looking for it, but it found you, and there it was. Maybe you were at the end of your rope. Maybe you'd hit rock bottom, and you'd run out of hope. And when you heard the gospel, God opened your eyes to receive Christ with great joy. You were faithless. You felt no need. You had no felt need for forgiveness. And yet when you were confronted with the gospel, when God gave you eyes to see it, you were immediately smitten with conviction, seeing your need for reconciliation with God and for your desperate, desperate need for a Savior. So you found it accidentally, or maybe it kind of found you. For others of you, when you look back to the time when you first became a Christian, You'd always known that there was a God. You always knew that there had to be some God out there, and you'd always known that you wanted to know Him. To be on His good side, that is, by the way, not His bad side. But you just didn't know how. You didn't know how to find Him. So you were seeking. You didn't know how. You didn't know where. 
You just knew that this is what you wanted to find. And so you sought him until you found him. You heard the gospel. And God opened your eyes to behold the treasure you had been seeking in Christ Jesus. Now some might raise an objection here and say, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible teach that no one seeks for God? Yep, it does. Doesn't the Bible say that no one does good? Because it would seem that seeking God would be a good thing. Yep, it does. The answer is that yes, it, it does teach that. However, first of all, we have to recognize that every parable is a type of illustration, and every illustration has shortcomings if you were to analyze every single little detail. No perfect illustrations. For example, in this, uh, in this parable, we reject the idea that God is selling uh, entrance into his kingdom, right? So no parable is a perfect illustration if you microanalyze the parable. But perhaps more importantly, we could say that there is a type of person that seeks for God. And there is only one type, and that is somebody who has already been regenerated, whom God has already been working on for who knows how long, someone whose heart has been rendered ripe for conversion, ripe for hearing and believing the gospel by the pre-conversion work, the pre-conversion ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's given them eyes to see. He's given them ears to hear. He's given them a deep, deep awareness of this void, this emptiness within them, and an awareness of their own inability to satisfy the holy and righteous demands of a holy and righteous God. And so it's kind of like the Holy Spirit has put a splinter in this person's heart. Now what do you do when you have a splinter under your skin? At first you don't even realize it sometimes. And then you know it kind of brushes up against something and you say, oh, I got a splinter. And so what do you do? You feel it, right? You look for it. You look closer and you look for a way to get it out. See, both of these types of people have been regenerated. Both types have had the eyes of their hearts opened to see and to behold the majestic glory of this treasure, of Christ, as the means by which they can be reconciled unto God and enter into the kingdom of God as citizens. Either way, however you come to Christ, the point here is this. When God opens the eyes of our hearts to truly desire and know and love Jesus, we will joyfully surrender everything. We will count as loss whatever we treasured before Him in order to gain Him. When God opens the eyes of our hearts to truly desire and know and love Jesus, we will joyfully surrender and count as loss whatever we treasured before Him in order to gain Him. Just like every pearl is unique, the kingdom of heaven is also unique. It's unique in the sense that it is substantially different from every other kingdom and every other religion in the world. Unlike every other religion, grace is not our reward for faith. Rather, faith flows from God's grace unto us. He opens the eyes of our hearts to see Christ. Faith is a gift from God. He's the author of 
and finisher, perfecter of our faith. We're not saved through faith alone by grace alone. No, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. There's a very important reason that they're stated in that sequence. The order of those things is very important. And that is, that's because grace is the cause of faith. Unlike every other religion in the world, we don't do good things in order to be welcomed and loved and received by God. No, we do good works because we've been welcomed and received and loved by God. Christianity is unique in the sense that our salvation is completely undeserved. There's nothing that we can do to deserve it. Our salvation is completely unmerited, completely unearned. Unlike every kingdom in the world, the kingdom of God cannot be broken. It cannot be overthrown. It cannot be moved. It cannot be shaken. And it cannot be contained by borders or demographics. The kingdom of God is the treasure of great value, of infinite value, unlike any other kingdom which can be bought or conquered. Nothing exceeds the value of God's kingdom. All of the treasures and all of the pleasures that the world has to offer are nothing in comparison to having citizenship in God's kingdom. Jesus said, What does it profit a man? To gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. In other words, even if you have everything in the world, everything in the universe, what's it good for? Maybe you have all the power, all the prestige, all the things, all the pleasures. What's it good for? It is absolutely worthless if you don't have the one thing that matters. And that is a perfect substitute to stand in judgment in your place for your sin. A perfect substitute to bear the wrath of God against your sin. Jesus offers salvation to all who will repent and believe in him. But he would warn us that there is a cost, just as he warned the rich young ruler that there was a cost. And that cost is all the things that you live for, all the things that you desire and love, must either be put in their proper place, reprioritized, or disposed of altogether. See, you can only come into the kingdom of God on God's terms. God's the one who sets the conditions. And God's terms, God's conditions, are that you come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But you must understand that while the cost may be great, nobody who seriously, genuinely, solemnly, commits to Christ as their treasure, looks back one day and says, man, I I wish I hadn't done that. Nobody finds themselves disappointed at having forsaken what needs to be forsaken and reprioritizing what needs to be reprioritized in order to gain Christ. Not one. Instead, people throughout history around the world have been willing to die rather than lose their one treasure, Christ. 
Both of these men in these parables find something that they realize they will never find anywhere else. They recognize the value. They recognize the the uniqueness of this opportunity. Both men decide they must have this treasure. Even if it means losing everything else. No matter the cost, they must have this treasure. And both men joyfully, joyfully surrender all that they have in order to gain this great treasure. And both men gain this treasure by surrendering all that they have. Friends, we would rightly say that anyone who encounters great treasure and passes on it is a fool. And yet the reality is that most people, they don't see the value of Christ when they hear the gospel. Some will say that the cost is too great to gain him. They don't want to reprioritize their affections and desires. They don't want to have to get rid of stuff that they love, sins that they love. Some will say it's too difficult. I have to, I have to humble myself. I have to see myself as totally dependent on God's grace. I, I can't see myself as deserving of it. And so they'll say it's too difficult to lay aside their perception of their own goodness. God has never received anyone as a son or daughter who relied on their own goodness to receive his love. Some will say that this great treasure that Christ is just isn't worth the trade-off. They'll feel like they're being cheated because their treasure is something else, maybe a sin, whatever it might be. And they'll say, this does not work in my favor if I have to lose this sin, this treasure of mine. What about you? What about you? Are you willing to forsake everything in order to gain the greatest of treasures? Are you willing to reprioritize your goals, your desires, your values for the sake of gaining this great treasure? Christ. Living as a citizen of God's kingdom in this world, friends, is neither cheap nor is it easy. And thus we have to ask ourselves these kinds of questions. Paul told Timothy that everyone, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some. It's not that some who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Paul says everyone, all. So that forces us to ask ourselves at least two questions. Number one, are are you being persecuted in some sense, in some way? Because if you're not, it's not because Paul was wrong. It's because you're not trying to live a godly life. And secondly, are you willing to be persecuted? Make no mistake, friends. It was once almost costless to be a Christian in our culture, in our country, but that is becoming increasingly not the case. 
It may cost you friendships. I know people who have lost their jobs because of their faith. It may cost you everything. It will cost you something. So the question is, are you willing to be hated by man in order to be loved by God? Because you have to understand that to refuse to give up what needs to be given up or to refuse to reprioritize whatever needs to be reprioritized is to reject Christ. And to reject Christ is to reject citizenship in the kingdom of God. It is that serious. Jesus said elsewhere that no one may serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That word master, by the way, is the same word that frequently gets translated as Lord. He's saying you you can't have two lords. You can't have two lords. No one can serve two lords. That's why Jesus said, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say that you're not worthy of being his disciple. Nobody's worthy. Christ is worthy. Christ alone is worthy. He doesn't say that it's going to make it, it's going to make it a little bit more challenging to be his disciple. No, he says that a person who will not renounce everything, striving to bring Every aspect of their life under the authority of Christ's lordship can not be his disciple. Man, if you've never realized how much we need grace, there it is. And so you must master anything and everything other than Christ which might threaten to master you. Bulldoze whatever binds you. Put away whatever prevents you from entering God's kingdom. Relinquish whatever restrains you from following Christ and belonging to Him. Imagine that you've been very sick. And so finally, you realize this isn't getting any better. It's only getting worse. And so you go to see a doctor. And he does some tests. He takes your temperature. He takes some blood. And he leaves the room and he comes back and he says, I've got good news and bad news. The bad news is that you're going to die. In fact, you have less than a week to live. The good news is that I have a cure that can save you, but it will mean that you can never drink coffee again or, or eat chocolate or, or, or take a hot shower in the morning. You, you know, whatever things you love in life, you know, insert here, right? So let me ask you, would you not give up anything and everything in order to have this cure, in order to live? Even coffee, hard to imagine. Even chocolate, impossible to imagine. It's got to be Supernatural. And yet you know that the day is coming when you will be laid to rest even if you get this cure. This cure only prolongs the inevitable. So if you would be willing to give up coffee or chocolate or hot showers or whatever in order to live a few years longer, how much more should you or would you be willing to surrender 
to receive eternal life in Christ. The point here is that Jesus is a treasure of greater value than anything else that we can desire or pursue in life. The kingdom of God is a treasure of greater worth than all other treasure combined. And believing in Jesus, placing saving faith in Jesus, is the means by which we enter into the kingdom of God. And thus there is no greater treasure to be desired. There is no greater treasure to be cherished or pursued than Jesus Christ himself. The point here is let no obstacle stand in your way in pursuing Christ. Let no obstacle stand in your way preventing you from gaining Christ. He is our great treasure. We come to him with nothing, and in him we receive all that we need. Paul would tell the Ephesians that we already have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here and now, we gain infinitely more in gaining Christ than we could possibly surrender in order to gain him. When God opens the eyes of our hearts to behold him as the treasure that he is, our hearts are filled with joy to surrender whatever is necessary in order to gain him, in order to have him, in order to know him, in order to be loved by him. And this isn't to say, by the way, that you have to sell all that you own in order to gain Christ, necessarily. That's not necessarily the point here. I was dealing with the idols of the rich young ruler, but we all have different idols. We all have different idols. Rather, when these two men sell all that they have to gain their treasure, it's a picture of somebody who's making their commitment to the treasure the first and foremost pursuit and passion in their lives. It's a picture of a, of a willingness to surrender and renounce everything that might prevent us from gaining Christ as the greatest treasure of all. And maybe you've been listening to this and you, you, know, you, you realize that you have never sought God. Maybe you've been coming to church because you were taught that you know, going to church is what you're supposed to do on Sunday mornings. Or you've been coming because there's some other need that you're trying to fill by coming to church on Sunday morning, but suddenly you have realized that the greatest treasure in all of existence is being offered to you at the cost of all that you have and all that you are. And you see this treasure. And you desire this treasure. Praise God. He's working on you. Now pursue the treasure. Follow through and make the exchange. Maybe you've been listening to me and you've been seeking spiritual truth and now you see the glory of Christ in the gospel and your quest for spiritual treasure has led you right to it. Here's Jesus, crucified for all, who will repent and believe in him. You've asked, you have sought You've knocked, and now you must enter in by the narrow gate by repenting and placing saving faith in Christ. And for some of you, you've, you've already done this. But maybe you've lost sight of the cost. And so you realize that you kind of need to go back to the basics and review what it is that this is all about, what it is that this requires of you. 
And praise God. Praise God if you have that conviction. And for some of you, you're able to look back on your life and you're able to reflect on how good, how incredibly good God was to lead you to Christ in his mercy. And you continue to cling to him with joy. He is your treasure. And you have no regrets. Praise the Lord. But finish the race well. Finish the race well. Cling to Christ as your greatest treasure. Jesus is a treasure that is of greater value than anything else that we can desire or pursue in life. And so come to him no matter what the cost is. Believe in him. Place saving faith in Christ. Cling to him. You will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this parable. We thank you for your word. We thank you for understanding and for clarity, and for conviction, Lord, because as each one of us evaluates our lives, we realize that there are areas that fall short, and that we depend, we depend on your grace as your people just as much as we depended on your grace to allow us to become one of yours. Thank you, Lord, that your grace, day by day, is more than enough. Thank you, Lord, that morning by morning, we see new mercy from you. Thank you, Lord, for conviction. Thank you, Lord, for being our treasure, for giving us something that we could never deserve or earn in Christ. Teach us, Lord to continue to count the cost, to ask ourselves these hard questions, that we may grow in our walk with you, that we may glorify you with our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Take me deeper.